All right, we're going to try something a little bit new tonight. So take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Brother Josh got me a little remote up here, and he always controlled everything from the back. Um, but there we go. It works. Look at that. All right. No, I tried it before and it worked, but you just never know. Technology, it's good until it's not. You want to see that again? I do too, actually. No, I don't know where it's at. <laughs> All right, actually, I tell you what, before we get to Revelation chapter 2, let's turn to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. So we're talking about establishing a strong church, and we've talked about several churches. Can you, re can you remember the churches that we've already talked about? Three. We've looked at the strength and weaknesses. We talked about Corinth, Antioch, and what's the other one? Jerusalem. Very good. So today, we're going to start talking about the church at Ephesus, and we're going to look at the strengths of that church. Now, I want to give you a little bit of a, 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 little, a little bit of a background into Ephesus before we get into it, because I think that actually is going to help us. I think it's safe to say that the church at Ephesus is probably one of the most important churches in all of the New Testament. Um, uh, historically, the city of Ephesus was one of the largest in the world during the New Testament era. Um, there was well over a half a million people in Ephesus, which if you think about 500,000 people in an ancient city is a lot. You know, I mean, we talk about some of these that had 20,000, 50,000, 100,000, 500,000 people is a lot of people. Um, architecturally, uh, it was a combination of, of Grecian and Roman influences, had the aqueducts, the temples, the baths, the theaters. Uh, one, of this, one of the theaters in that city actually was able to seat 25,000 people. I mean, which, okay, you think about a baseball stadium today, it can fit 40,000, 50,000, but for back then, I mean, that's, that's a pretty amazing thing, 25,000 people, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly, to be able to hear it. Of course, they were all designed in amazing ways so that you could hear those things. But the first, uh, the first place that we come across Ephesians in the Scripture is during Paul's travel uh, in Acts chapter 19 and verse number 1. And it came to pass, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And so on. Uh, Paul found certain disciples. Now, these, these were believers, uh, believing Jews who had been either baptized directly by John the Baptist. Now, you've got to remember, John the Baptist obviously was killed before Jesus was killed. Uh, his head was you know, taken off in a charger and everything else. Um, but John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Uh, so these certain disciples were either baptized directly by John the Baptist or were baptized by disciples of John the Baptist. There were people who followed John the Baptist closely uh, before Jesus came. And, and you, you also have to remember this. When was John the Baptist baptizing and doing all his stuff in the wilderness and everything else? Yeah, which was before Jesus was, you know, Jesus' earthly ministry had not taken place yet and all of these other things. Uh, so that means then Jesus' ministry happens, and that's another three and a half years before he's killed. So John the Baptist is still talking about Jesus coming to die. Um, and we're not going to get, you know, this is not a theological lesson tonight, but John's baptism was a baptism that was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Now, Jesus proclaimed that he was. He said that he was going to die. He said that he was going to rise again and all that stuff, but he had not done that yet. Um, and so, uh, you know, John's baptism was one that was looking forward to that. And so it was a baptism of faith of the coming Messiah. Now, 
Everybody, not, not everybody, but a lot of people say, well, you know, if you look in the Old Testament, the way that they were saved in the Old Testament was by their sacrifices and all of those kind of things. If they sacrificed to God, then that means they were Christians. Then that's being saved by works. They were not saved by their works. They were doing those things as a result of the fact that they did believe in God, but they were saved the same way that we were, except they were looking forward to a Messiah. We're looking back at a Messiah. Uh, and that's, they were saved by faith in Jesus Christ that he was going to come and die for their sins. We are saved by faith in the fact that we're looking back at Jesus Christ having come and died for our sins. They were saved in the same way, except that they were on one side of Jesus coming, we were on the other side of it. Um, and so Paul explains uh, that John's preaching was about Jesus Christ, directed these, uh, and we're just kind of summarizing what's happening here in Acts chapter 19. Um, but directs them to put their faith specifically in Jesus uh, as their Savior, and they did that. They readily did that, and, and these dozen men or so became the, the kind of the, the seed of the church there in Ephesus. Um, Paul would stay in that city for many years, teaching and preaching the Word of God and, and building this church really into a, a great church, into a mighty work there. In fact, if you look at verse number 10 in Acts chapter 19, and this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelled in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Um, that's, that's a long time for Paul to stay in any one place, especially when you consider how many places he was at and how, uh, how quickly he kind of came in and went out of these places. So two years he stayed there preaching. Um, while Paul was there, he ordained Timothy to be the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Paul left that church and left Timothy there as the pastor, um, and continued on with his travels, but uh, Paul chose Ephesus. In fact, if you look in verse number 17 of Acts chapter 19, he chose Ephesus a lot like he chose the other cities where he started churches because it had, a, it had a, some great potential for, um, for regional influence because of the, the center that it was and the hub that it was. So verse 17, and this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on, on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, and many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word uh, of God and prevailed. By the way, uh, 50,000 pieces of silver was equivalent to about $10 million today. That is a lot of money worth of books. Now, uh, Diana of the Ephesians, you see that happening throughout the book of Acts, and Diana of the Ephesians was one of the greatest goddesses um, in that era um, because she was the god of the Ephesians, or I should say the goddess of the Ephesians, a false god, but she was their goddess. And so, um, I mean, you think about 500,000 people, and the majority of those people at one point or another in their life believed in Diana of the Ephesians. So they had... Uh, idols that were made to her. They had statues. They had, you know, all kinds of, you know, figurines and all kinds of stuff. And they got into the magic and the curious arts. That's what the Bible's talking about. And so they had all these books and everything else that, that dealt with that. Now, you think about that. They go and burn $10 million worth of books and things that relate to Diana of the Ephesians. That's going to get the attention of the people who are selling these things and making a profit off of it, Right? I mean, obviously, they had already sold those $10 million worth of things, but that's a lot of people who are no longer buying their stuff. Uh, lots of people that have gotten saved and everything else. And so that actually caused a riot to happen um, and an attack 
um, on the power of this growing Ephesian church. Look at verse 23 of Acts chapter 19. At the same time, there arose no small stir about that way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen. In other words, that was not a small business. They, they, they were wealthy because of selling these figurines and everything else. Whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this, our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificent, magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. When they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. The whole city was filled with confusion. And on and on it goes with this riot that's taking place. But you see what's happening. Paul and the church there at Ephesus was having such a strong impact on the people there. So many people were getting saved. So many people were turning away from Diana the Ephesians and turning to God that they realized we've got to do something about this. We're wealthy because of, of Diana the Ephesians and because of this craft. We're going to lose that wealth if we don't do something about it and something about it soon. Because you know that not only everybody in Ephesus, but everybody in all of Asia and in the rest of the world worships Diana. They're turning away so many people, not just in Ephesus, but in Asia and in the rest of the world, that if we don't do something about this, not only is our craft going to be gone, Diana the Ephesians is going to be gone. I mean, what a great impact they were having on that area. You know, it was, it was bad news for these guys, but that's great news for Paul and the church at Ephesus. Uh, and so we can see then that, that, that the Ephesian church began with just an unhesitating commitment to Jesus Christ. Uh, and they continued under the direct leadership of Paul for, for quite some time as a thriving institution. So what I want to talk to you tonight about is the strength of the church at Corinth. Not only do we have what happened in Corinth, in Acts, we have it in Ephesians, but we also have it in Revelation 2. So turn to Revelation 2, and we'll look at some of the strengths. I mean, of course, we could say that they were a large church. We've said that about everyone. We're not going to say that about this church tonight. Uh, they were a large church, and that gave them a lot of influence. But the first thing is that they were a church that was hard at work serving the Lord. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, let me turn over there. Revelation chapter 2, and by the way, uh, this, this passage in Revelation talks about all the different seven churches, and Ephesus is one of those churches. Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, I know thy works and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them, which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. Now, works and labor here are not the exact same thing. And there's a reason the Bible makes a differentiation between those two things in that second verse. I know thy works and thy labor. Now, works is the idea that God knows exactly what you're doing and not doing. We see that. Our works are going to be tried by fire. We see that in 1 Corinthians. We see that in other passages that... God's going to try our works. It's a statement of accountability. It's, it's found in reference to all the seven churches that are discussed here in Revelation. God was paying attention, and they, he knew what they were doing and what they were not doing. So he says, I know thy works, and he also says, I know thy labor. And that, on the other hand, means God viewed them as a church that was hard at work serving him. I know what you're doing, I know what you're not doing, and I know your labor. I know that you're hard at work serving me. Now, we don't 
gain our salvation, and we don't keep our salvation uh, by our good works. But we are co uh, commanded over and over and over in the New Testament to do good works. Uh, good works has nothing to do with getting to heaven. Uh, but the Bible says very plainly that Jesus went about doing what? Good. He went about doing good, and that's what we ought to be doing. A good church is a church that is, like the Bible says, zealous unto good works. That's, that's just the way that we ought to be. Now, uh, if you go back to the uh, original Greek, labor here means working to the point of utter weariness. Now, we in our English language don't have some of the descriptors that they have in the Greek or that the, a Greek word carries with it, but that's what that idea of labor means. It means exactly what you think labor is. It's not like the Bible is, you know, like that word is translated wrong in the English. Labor is the only word that we have for it. But this idea of what he's talking about with labor in this passage is that they were laboring to the point of just utter weariness. They were working themselves to death in God's cause. And that's a great thing to be able to be said about a church. Uh, and that's why they were effective for Jesus Christ. You think about what they were able to do there in Ephesus to the point where they got everybody's attention. Why was that? They were working for Jesus Christ. And in the following verse there, in, in verse number three, and hast borne and hast patience and, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Uh, that's, I mean, that again is just, they're working to the point of exhaustion, but they're not fainting in the battle. They're not, they're not being drawn out of the battle because of the work that they're doing. Um, falling over uh, in exhaustion or from exhaustion is not a temptation that comes to a lazy person, right? Um, and, and what's happening is that there's a, the only way that you can describe this is that they were working hard for Jesus Christ and that they were not lazy in what they were doing. And not only that, but they were also... Uh, they were doing it for the right motivation. They were, they were not doing it to try to lift themselves up. They were doing it for Jesus Christ. They were doing it for their master. It says that very plainly in that verse. Has borne, verse 3, has patience, and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Now, this is God saying that about them, right? This is not somebody describing their church. This is God saying that about them. Does God know their works? Absolutely. Does God also know their hearts? Absolutely. And God is saying, they weren't doing it for anything other than for my name's sake. So for God to say this is not somebody just observing them from the outside. They were doing it for the right reasons. They were doing it for God. They, did, they didn't pour themselves into this labor out of desire to please their pastor. They weren't doing this out of a desire to, you know, uh, for any other reason. They were afraid of God or they were, you know, they were doing it for pride or any of those things. They did it for the Lord, and that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. That's what a church's motivation is. Because you know what? Uh, I have no intention of ever leaving this church, but that doesn't mean that God couldn't do something and take me out. You know, I might die tomorrow. Pastors are going to come and go in churches. I mean, look, if this church continues until Jesus comes, it might be another 150 years. You might have 15 more pastors between now and when Jesus Christ comes back. Pastors come and go. If you're doing your work for a pastor... You're doing it for the wrong reason. It ought to be done for Jesus Christ. It ought to be done for his glory. Not so that the pastor, wow, that person is doing a lot. I appreciate it. I certainly appreciate it when people are working for the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're doing it for me, you're doing it for the wrong reason. You ought to be doing it for the Lord. 
And that's exactly what the church there in Ephesus was doing, and God commended them for that. They were hard at work serving the Lord, but also, here's the second thing, they were a patient church. And we see that very clearly in verse number 2 of Revelation chapter 2. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience. Now, patience implies a persevering endurance. That's what they were doing. They were working for the Lord. They were, they were just putting all of their effort into working for Him, but... Uh, if you're having proper, uh, proper work, good work, uh, high-quality work, uh, you simply have to have patience to make it come to something, come to fruition. Uh, it requires a, a careful, methodical craftsmanship. That's, that's what this idea that is behind this is all about. Uh, that's true if you're building a, you know, a shed, a farmhouse table, uh, anything. It takes patience. It takes work. It takes effort. Um, or the same thing if you're building a new convert into a Sunday school teacher. I mean, it all takes work, it takes effort, it takes time, and God has to be the one that does that work. Uh, take witnessing, for example. You don't have to turn over there, but Luke chapter 8 and verse number 15 says, but on, that good uh, but on the good ground are they, which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it, and bring forth fruit with patience. This is, talking, this is the parable where, where some fell on stony ground, some fell on you know, rough ground, some fell on good ground. And that's what he's saying is the ones that fell on good ground, they hear the word of God, they keep it, they bring forth fruit with patience. Soul winning is not a church growth method. Now, we can certainly get people into the church by soul winning, but soul winning uh, is just obediently sowing the seed of God's word. We ought to be inviting people to come to church when we go out knocking on doors or when we see people in the community. But soul winning is just doing what God's told us to do. Whether somebody comes to the church or not, whether somebody gets saved or not, our job is to sow the seed. You never know where it's going to take. We were just talking about this the other day. Who was that back that, that Oh, yes, yeah, because, um, you know, we've been doing the, the thing about the Mormons uh, in Sunday school. And um, this, the one fellow that was in there, uh, the younger fella was on a mission for two years and about a month or two shy of his um, uh, mission coming to an end, uh, he, he started realizing that everything that he was doing was not the truth. And it all started when somebody's house that he went to, a Christian who was faithful to spread the word of God, loved this guy saw that he was going down the wrong way, was kind to him, and gave him some truth from the Word of God. And he, doesn't, he has no idea who that person was, and that person has no idea who he is, has no idea that he's now a Christian and serving God and all of these other things. You have no idea. And so we started talking about that. I said, I wonder how many tracts that we've given out that somebody read and got saved that you'll never know, that you'll never know who they are. They'll never remember who you were. They got saved because you were faithful in sowing the seed. And that's why I say that soul winning is not building your church. Soul winning is spreading the seed, getting the gospel out there so that people can hear the gospel. And it takes the Holy Spirit to bring that seed to life. Uh, you regenerating a lost man. And we can't rush the work of the Holy Spirit. I can pray for it. I can plan for it. I can prepare for it. But I can't rush it. it a lot of times it just takes time to bear fruit. Uh, and the same is true, you know, how many times, you know, many times a pastor in a church gets discouraged because 
some of the things that we are doing, some of the activities that we're doing to try to get the gospel out and to try to get people in just don't seem like they're bearing fruit. But you stay with it, and you have that patience, and you allow the Holy Spirit to work, and you keep witnessing, and you keep telling people about Jesus. You keep sowing that seed, and eventually, some of it's going to take. You know what happens a lot of times? Well, I invited somebody to church, and they didn't come. It, it just doesn't work. Look, you throw one seed out into a field, guess what's going to happen? It may or may not come up, but there's a good chance that that one seed is not going to come up, right? But if you throw 50,000 seeds out into a field, there's a good chance that a good number of them are going to come up. The more you sow, the more you're going to reap. And that is so true in witnessing as well. Well, it just doesn't work. I don't go knocking on doors because how many people have we knocked on their door and how many people have come from, from knocking on their door? Very few. But I can tell you this, the more doors you knock on, the better opportunity you're going to have for somebody coming in, better opportunity you're going to have to be able to share the gospel, better opportunity you have for somebody that's going to get saved. And so uh, we have to have that patience. But when you connect that work with patience, you get labor, which is working patiently to the point of utter exhaustion without giving up. That's what God was commending the Ephesian church for. I want to go to heaven exhausted. You know, we certainly have to take care of ourselves, but I want to be used up in my service for him. What good does it do to arrive to heaven fresh? You know, what good does it do to show up without having used up everything that God gave you? Right? What good does it do to show up and have 50,000 seeds still in the barn? Right? I'm going to get it all out there. Get it out there. Let God use that. We don't know how God's going to use it until you get it out there. That's what our job is, is to get it out there. And that's what God commended this church at Ephesus for. They were hard at work serving the Lord. They were patient. And lastly, they were a fiercely independent church. Now turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. They were a fiercely independent church. Now, I'm an independent Baptist, not by birth, but by conviction. Now, I was born into an independent Baptist church. My parents were independent Baptists when I was born, but I'm not an independent Baptist because I was born into it. I'm an independent Baptist because that's my conviction. I pastor an independent Baptist church. In other, in other words, what that means, and we just went through the whole series on what it means to be a Baptist um, and what it means specifically to be an independent Baptist, but what that means is that our church doesn't belong to any larger denomination, any larger organization. Um, you know, we don't have any external support, but we also don't have any external controls either. Um, and I was just talking with someone about that. Oh, we met a guy at the campground and um, got to talking with them. In fact, they're supposed to come next year. They're going to come through Richmond and, and hopefully they'll come to church, Catholics. Um, but that's a great opportunity to get them in uh, and, and hopefully see them get saved. We'll see. But we got to talking about it, and, and I, you know, I was telling him we're not we're we're not part of anything. We're not we're not Catholic, where we have you know all the hierarchy. We're not Southern Baptist, which they have all of that hierarchy. Uh, now, and I told him too because we got to talking about the building and everything else, and I was able to tell him a lot of the things that God did to get us into this place. And uh, I, he said, "So do you have somebody? I mean, somebody's got to be sponsoring you. Somebody's got to be you know behind this whole thing." I said, "Nope, we don't." We don't have anybody that's feeding us money. I said, you know, the Southern Baptist Church, uh, they have some of that. Well, you need $6 million for the property? All right, here you go. You're $6 million. I don't know if they would do that specifically. But, but then they also can, they control um, what you preach, who you have in, uh, who the pastors are. I just, you know, that's one of the things that I just, I don't get. I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with a family right now 
my neighbor's my neighbor's daughter actually is getting married, and and um, she said that they were part of a Methodist church. And she said, but you know, the the they just moved the pastor. We were pretty close with the pastor that was there. They just moved him out and moved a new guy in, and we don't know him yet, and this and that. And so we wanted somebody that we knew to do the wedding for us. And I just started to think, you know. And that's what they do within these denominations. Yeah, a few years there, you move that pastor out, move a new pastor in. You're just starting to get to know the people by that point. Why would you move somebody out and then put somebody in that has no idea who the people are, what their backgrounds are, what their situations are? I mean, practically, it just makes sense to be an independent church. Um, and and I, get, I, I also get it that practically it does have its advantages that you know, they you know, can be helped out and, and so on. But you don't see that anywhere in the Bible. And so there's a lot of support for that in the Bible, actually. Um, it's based on the fact that the church is local, not universal. We don't see a universal church in the Bible. You see local churches in the Bible. But also, uh, it's founded on the idea that the only head of the church, any church, is Jesus Christ. You know, the Pope is not the head of the church. The president of the Southern Baptist Convention is not the head of the church, and that's the position that they're putting themselves in. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, not, not some man that's put himself as the head of this church, right? Now, obviously, I'm the pastor. I wouldn't call myself the head of this church. I lead this church, but I'm not the head. Jesus Christ is the head. The Bible is, is what we stand on for our authority, not what I say. Uh, and, and so, you know, in fact... Uh, we see that that theological truth right there found in this epistle to the Ephesians, verse uh, 22 of chapter 1. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Didn't say that to the Pope. Didn't say that to the, you know, the president of the organization. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, turn a couple, page, a couple pages over. And this, is, of course, is, is the familiar passage talking about the, the family the fact that the wife should be submissive to her husband, that the husband is answers to Jesus Christ for everything that he does within the family. But it says that in verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. And very plainly, we can say that the Ephesian church took that seriously. Turn back over to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, who or what were the Nicolaitans? They're not really mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, you, don't see a, or, uh, you don't see a lot of it. You, you do have some of that in, in other places. But, um, simple answer, uh, you have to kind of look at what the word itself means. Nico means to conquer or to get victory. Laos means people. So, the laity, the layman, and so on. So if you put those two together, you get the idea that the Nicolaitans, uh, or to get to say that somebody was a Nicolaitan, meant that they were ruling or conquering the people. It involved what the Bible talks about as lording over God's church. That's warned against in a lot of different places in the Scripture. One of them is in 1 Peter chapter 5. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. The pastor as the bishop of the church, does have some genuine authority in the church, but it doesn't rise to the level of dictatorship. And that's exactly what happens with the Pope and with these other guys that, that put themselves in there, lording over the flock of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what he's talking about in this passage. Um, 
my job is primarily to be an influence, to be an example through preaching and the way that I live. That's how I'm supposed to lead. Not by being a dictator, not by saying you're going to do this and this is how it's going to be, but through preaching of the Word of God and through example. Uh, John, in fact, turn over to 3 John. There's only one chapter in 3 John. But John, who also wrote the book of Revelation, uh, had some previous experience with this type of thing. 3 John, uh, well, John, verse 9. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren, forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. He specifically calls out diatrophies. Why? Because he was being a dictator in the church. It's exactly, look, look what he does. He loved to have the preeminence among them. We're not letting these people come in. If I'll, He says, I'm going to remember his deeds, prating against us with malicious words, not content. D uh, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, forbiddeth them that would, casteth them out of the church. He was, he was being a dictator. And God said, what about him? Verse 11, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. And in that case, Diotrephes had inserted himself into the chain of command between the church and Jesus Christ. Diotrephes had put himself in the position as the head of the church instead of allowing Jesus Christ to be the head of the church. And God called him evil. He claimed to have this preeminence in power, but who's to have the preeminence in the church? Jesus Christ, and that's it. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. No man or group of men is supposed to be the Lord over God's church. No man is to have the preeminent authority to determine individually by himself what the church should and should not do. Those, these are matters that are led by the pastor and that are, that are approved by the people that are being led. Um, that's exactly what it's, that it's supposed to be, not some man or some group lording over the church. And, and I really would like to take some time to, to go through this, but we're running out of time. Uh, so I'll do this quickly. But if you look in Acts chapter 6, in fact, turn over there. What you see happening here in Acts chapter 6, before you get there, somebody tell me what happened in the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 6. Not Pentecost, that was, that was 2 and 3. Not the persecution. I'm talking about in Acts chapter 6. What happened in Acts chapter 6? Stephen, but what? What about Stephen? Stephen's sermon comes later on in Acts chapter 6 and 7. What's at the beginning of Acts 6? you remember? You can look at it. That was later on. Beginning of Acts chapter 6. Choosing, chosen, choosing deacons. Right. They were choosing deacons. And then, yes, all of that stuff that you mentioned about Stephen being stoned and all this stuff happened later on. He got up there and he preached and then they stoned him. But what was happening is they were appointing deacons. Why was that? Because they, there was so much work that needed to be done in the church. The pastors said, our job is to preach and to pray. We need somebody that can serve uh, in the church. And so they, they called the deacons. By the way, you don't see the deacons forming a committee and telling the pastor what to do. Amen. Right? You don't see the deacons forming a committee and telling the, this is the direction that the church is going to go in. Right? 
God called the pastor to do that, uh, to cast the vision for the church and then for the church to follow that, that vision. The deacons were there to serve, Amen. and that was it. Amen. But you see what's happening here. They said, let's call seven men, and the church said, okay, that's, a, that's what we need to do. Let's do that. But they approved it, and that's my point. Uh, nobody is a dictator. Nobody is, you know, all-powerful or anything like that. And there's a lot of interesting things in here, and I wish we had time to go through all of them. Um, but how then did the Nicolaitans justify their power? In other words, lording over the church. This is what we've kind of established that the Nicolaitans were. They lorded over the church. They were dictators in the church. The way that they did that was through... Uh, the apostleship. Now, you notice some things uh, that happened in th throughout the New Testament, for that matter, but Paul appointed Timothy to be the pastor of the church at Ephesus, right? They didn't call him to be the pastor. Paul appointed Timothy to be the pastor. Uh, you see other places where Paul, um, he was dealing with this discord in the church at Corinth, and he threatened to do what? Come and set things in order, right? Who was Paul to have this authority? He was an apostle. And the apostles, uh, which this is what I would have liked to have taken some more time to go through, but the apostles had the authority directly from Jesus Christ. Why was that? And what did you have to do to be an apostle? Number one, you had to be given that ability uh, to be an apostle, you had to have been given that authority to be an apostle, but you also had to see Jesus Christ. Right. That was one of, the, one of the stipulations. And while the church, the, the Catholic church, claims that they are, you know, that, they've, that they uh, have the mantle of Peter's apostolic authority, so the Pope now has that authority that's come all the way down from Jesus Christ. Look, there's gifts that were given to the early church that were gone when the apostles were gone. The gift of speaking in tongues. I know the, the Pentecostals especially, and others use it, but the Pentecostals like to talk about the speaking in tongues. And the only way that you can prove that you have the Holy Spirit is if you speak in tongues. That was a gift that was given to the early church that was gone when the apostles left. Same thing with some of these other gifts, and the same things with apostles. Some of those things were absolutely necessary. God, speaking in tongues is not a heavenly language. Speaking in tongues is, I'm speaking in English, and all of those people were understanding it in their language. It had to be that way, or the gospel never would have spread the way that it spread. So that came, and it went. The gifts of healing. Now, God still heals today, but no man has the gift of healing. That was a gift that came. And it went. God had to give them something that could be the authority that they stood on so that people would believe what they were saying. Right. You're talking about Jesus Christ dying and rising again. Who are you to tell me that I need to believe on Jesus Christ? Well, God gave them some of those abilities, speaking in tongues, healing, and a lot of these other things. And God gave them the authority as an apostle. That was a gift that came and went, just like all the rest of them to give that church the authority that they needed as it was being established. But there are no more apostles. And so in order to qualify as an apostle, you had to have all of these things that we talked about, Acts chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 9, Luke 6, Acts 2, 2 Corinthians 12. The apostles had no successors, Catholic or otherwise. 
Uh, in fact, the Bible says that you don't need to turn over there for the sake of time, but 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 13, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. That's gone. There are no more apostles. God gave them that authority, and when they were gone, he took that authority away. The church at Ephesus grasped that doctrinal truth, and they applied it. Uh, they dealt very harshly with the Nicolaitans. Turn over to Revelation 2, and we'll be done. The false doctrine of this external hierarchy ruling over the local church in the name of apostolic authority. That's what the Nicolaitans were, and they dealt very harshly with them. How can we know this? Revelation chapter 2 and verse 6. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Verse 2. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. Amen. So, in conclusion, I guess we can say this. Let's do our best to be hardworking, rightly motivated, patient, fiercely independent churches. That's exactly what we are trying to build here. And with God being our helper, that's what we can accomplish. This church at Ephesus was a great church. Now, they had a glaring weakness. We're going to talk about that next week. But they were a great church because, number one, they were independent. They did not have anybody as their authority except for God and the Bible. And essentially, those two are the same thing, God's Word and God. We, we get God's authority from the Word of God, and that's where they took their authority from. But they were patient. They worked with those that were trying to come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, and then once they did, in developing them into what God wanted them to be. And we're all in that process. We're all still trying to be exactly what God wants us to be. Because if we were exactly like Jesus Christ, then we'll be what God wants us to be, and none of us are exactly like Jesus Christ. We're all in that developing process. And so we have to deal with patience, not only with ourselves, but with others. And of course, then they were very hardworking for God. God says, I know your works, I know what you're doing and you're not doing, but I know your labor. I know how hard you're working for me. And you're working so hard and you're not fainting. Keep going, keep doing it, keep pushing forward. And look what God did through that church at Ephesus. I mean, to the point where even the, you know, you, you see some of these, we're never going to get over that hump. You know, we're never going to see God do something in an area like this. Could be this area, could be any area, you know. Um, but look, God did that in the middle of a country that belonged to Diana the Ephesians, a multi-multi-million dollar industry brought to its knees because of what God was doing, right? To the point where they said, we've got to do something about this and we've got to do something about it now. This guy, Paul, is ruining our industry and not only is he ruining our industry, he's ruining our God. We've got to do something to stop him, right? That's the power that God has through a church that's willing to go forward for him, that's willing to work with patience, that's willing to be independent with God as their head, and that's it, and that's willing to just work for him. I think one of the big mistakes that a lot of churches make is that they equate work with power. You've got to have God's power, but God has to have something to bless, right? We can say all we want to about how we want God's power, but if all we do is sit right here in these chairs and never go out, and do anything for God, God's not going to bring people in. We've got to go out and do something. We've got to give him something to work with. Uh, but 
we need to have his power, and we need to have that work. And God working through us will help us to accomplish the fact that, you know, bringing people in and seeing people saved and all of that stuff. It's exactly what he did in Ephesus. It's exactly what we can see here. Uh, you think about how bleak of a situation it looked in Ephesus, right? Everywhere you looked, Diana of the Ephesians, Diana of the Ephesians, you know? It's like billboards and posters and everything else. I mean, they didn't have that back then, but you can imagine, you know, every billboard was, was some kind of thing for Diana of the Ephesians. Every, you know, every storefront window had something about Diana of the Ephesians in it. You walked in, and there were statues of her everywhere, Right? And God moved in a place like that to the point where they were willing to burn $10 million worth of stuff because they had turned to God. God can do that. God can do that there. He can do it here. He can do it anywhere. We've got to be willing to let him. We've got to be willing to, you know, fall in line with what the Holy Spirit wants us to do. And he can do a great work, and he can do the same thing here. So let's make sure we're doing those things that God can bless. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for our church. I thank you for every person that's involved here. And God, I pray that you'd help us to be a church that you are pleased with, and that you can be proud of, and that you can commend in the same way that you commended this church there in Ephesus, that we were just willing to take a stand and to work for you. And God, that you'd bless us the same way that you bless them. I pray that you'd help us to be a witness for you this week. That would be what a Christian ought to be in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.